again, happy to, to be here to, to speak about the Feast of Dedication. Um, obviously, since we're going through it, uh, since we're living it right now and celebrating it, we're going to be discussing it this morning. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the story of Hanukkah. And we're also going to look in the Hebrew Bible and New Testament to see some references to it, even though it's nowhere explicitly mentioned. And then we're going to discuss some takeaways, some applications about this feast, some things to, to think about as we're celebrating it together. Now, uh, most of you are probably pretty familiar with the Feast of Hanukkah, I'm sure. Um, 167 BCE, so about 160 years before the Messiah came, you have the Greeks, and they're trying to turn everyone kind of into a unified Greek empire. And you have Antiochus, and he defiled the Jewish temple in about 167. And in response, you had the Jewish uprising. They fought. Three years later, they got the temple back and they rededicated it to the Lord. However, in their rededication, they only found one little flask of oil that was still pure to light the menorah. Now, the oil was only supposed to last for one day, but as you're well aware, it lasted, according to tradition, for eight whole days. And that's why we celebrate the eight days of Hanukkah. Because of this miracle, we're supposed to light the candles every night. You're supposed to put the candles on a windowsill or, you know, be able to express it to the whole world saying how great the miracles of God is, that he preserved his people. Um, in contemporary settings, nowadays, in order to make the, the Hanukkah story a little more uh, relatable, you know, because we don't really use oil for lights, you know, we have electricity and candles, things like that. Uh, there's there's often a, a picture that circulates that you you may have seen uh, where it tries to contemporize the the miracle of Hanukkah, and it's this picture here. Imagine if your cell phone was at 10% but lasted eight days. Now you understand Hanukkah, right? And like I love that that comparison because you know just like your cell phone connects you to people, the temple was really the place where the the Shekhinah, where, where God's presence would dwell, and the menorah was what represented his presence, the fire there. And so it really was kind of like the lifeline to God. So I think it's a, it's a good comparison. And I think that if our iPhones or whatever phone you use lasted for uh, eight days on 10%, we would call that a miracle as well. Now, the issue with this tradition, as you may know, is that of, of oil lasting for eight days is that it's much, much later. Right. So again, like around 167, the, the temple was uh, defiled 167 before the Messiah. But the tradition of oil lasting eight days comes about 700 years later in the Babylonian Talmud. That's really the first time you see it. Even when you go back in time, Jerusalem Talmud, or if you're looking at Josephus in the second temple period, no one ever mentions uh, this miracle. Doesn't mean it's wrong to do. I think it's, it's great. But you know, acknowledging the fact that it may not have happened. Um, that being said, there's still much to celebrate when we're looking at the story of the Maccabees and Hanukkah, when we go back and see what actually happened. There's a lot of reason to celebrate. First, Hanukkah, it should make us praise God for the fact that he preserved his people physically as they fought, and he preserved them spiritually. The fact that they could have apostatized, they could have gone away from the faith, but he preserved them there. So it's an opportunity to praise God, but it's also an opportunity to, to look inward. 
you know, just, just as the, the temple was defiled and then it was rededicated to God, it, it's a, a great image of the fact that we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as they, the Maccabees, made sure that the temple was ready for the worship of God, the Feast of Hanukkah causes us to look inward as well and to think, okay, are there things that I need to rededicate? Are there ways that I'm compromised, that, that my, my body wouldn't be functioning as a good temple before the Lord? And just like the temple was purified, what must we clean out to be holy vessels and to be dedicated to God? Now, dedication to God could take many different forms. Um, one way of being dedicated to God is our commitment to grow and to study the word, which is not always, you know, mountaintop experiences. Uh, when, I, when I first graduated from Moody uh, back in 2010, I remember I was working for an organization and my cousin, my, my family on my mother's side are Chabadniks, right? So, so they're very religious, not fond of our Messianic faith. And I got an email from my, um, from my cousin about why Yeshua can't be the Messiah, right? And so having you know, been right out of the undergraduate program and, you know, as a, as a typical undergrad thinking I knew all the answers, you know, I just wrote back and I was like, you know, Isaiah 714. And of course he is and this and that half expecting my cousin to be like, oh, you know, you're right. Um, you know, let me, let me give my faith to, or my life to Messiah. Um, instead, what he did was he forwarded my email to um, a professional anti-missionary in New Jersey. Now, anti-missionaries, uh, if you know, they're, they're like Jews for Judaism. Their whole purpose is to uh, dissuade Jews from believing in Jesus. Anyway, and so this began an eight-month dialogue, and this person I was speaking with was much better prepared. Uh, much more familiar with the arguments than I was. And he was throwing at me theological, emotional, culture, historical, everything, all these objections that really made me began to question my foundation. I remember I would spend hours, two to three hours, like responding and researching and, and trying to pick apart the argument. After hitting send within like 15 minutes, he would reply, you know, with, with all his answers. And it was disheartening, you know, and I remember at that point thinking like, okay, how dedicated am I? To, to continue studying despite all the, these tensions within myself. You know, and one narrative that was always very helpful for me was, um, is, is Jacob wrestling. You know, uh, he, he wrestles with, with the Lord or with the angel, however you interpret it. He, he's wrestling all night in Genesis 32. Um, and and the, the endurance that you need in order to, to kind of, you know, get through or get that blessing. And so, um, the first thing is studying our commitment to grow. You know, it's, it's not always uh, flowers or mountaintops, but how committed are we? Uh, another way that we could be dedicated is in our spiritual lives. You know, refraining from some things that are harmful or engaging in disciplines that are going to allow us to grow, disciplines of prayer, disciplines of meditation, you know, and especially in this time of COVID where there's sort of uh, less accountability, dedication is so, so important. You know, uh, about a month ago, a news article came out about a, a famous pastor um, he, he, of a fairly large church in the U.S. and how he had an extramarital affair and he was subsequently let go of his post. And in his public apology, he stated on, uh, it was on social media and he stated an apology and he correctly noted, he says, quote, when you accept the calling of being a pastor, now you can replace pastor with a follower of the Messiah or sheep or, or whatever it is. When you accept that calling, you must live in such a way that it honors the mandate. And when that doesn't happen, a change needs to be made. 
right? And that's, so that's what I love about Hanukkah is that we, we worship God for the preservation of the temple, but we also look inward. You know, it, am I living up to my calling? Am I listening? Am I obeying the Lord? It, would my temple be considered ready for the presence of, of the spirit, so to speak? So that's what we're going to uh, discuss this morning. That's what we're going to have an eye towards uh, as we go through our text. Um, you are more than welcome to follow with me in your Bibles. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, which like preaching 101 in uh, seminary, you should not do, you know, only stick with one text, but we're going to go to a couple of other ones here. Um, so I'm going to have them on the PowerPoint, but if you want, we're going to be looking at Daniel eight, uh, pretty soon. So you could feel free to flip over there. So this morning we're going to first look at our uh, at the story of Hanukkah, what actually transpired uh, when you look at the, at the book of Maccabees. And then we're going to discuss kind of three takeaways that, that we can learn from this story. The first thing is the danger of deception. Um, you know, often the Hanukkah story is portrayed as like Antiochus, this evil man, was coming after the Jews. Sort of. Yeah, that's true. But when you read about like Josephus and how he talks about it, there was also a split in the Jewish community where some were going with Antiochus, whereas others were not. And so what caused them to go to Antiochus? What causes people today to abandon the faith, even though they made a declaration uh, at one point? So the first thing we're going to look at is the danger of deception. And next, we're going to look at the key to dedication. You know, we're, we're a community or, I don't know, community, we're a uh, a people that's obsessed with, you know, New Year's resolutions and like, you know, this year I'm going to change. What's the key to it? When you look at Maccabees, when you look at Daniel, when you look at Elijah, what's the key to being committed? And so we're going to explore that. And then finally, we're going to see the object of our dedication, which is by far the most important point. Um, you could be the fastest runner in the world, right? But if the, when the race starts and you run in the opposite direction, you're not going to win because your, your, your eyes were not on the actual prize on, on what to do. So you could be the most dedicated person, but if you don't have the proper object of dedication, it's all for nothing. Uh, Paul speaks about his brethren according to the flesh, and he says that they have such a great zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. So the question is, who is or what is the object of our dedication? So these are the three things that we'll, we'll discuss. So let's uh, jump in here. Now, uh, some preliminary points, uh, like I mentioned before. So the Feast of Hanukkah, it's unique because you don't find it in the Hebrew Bible. So if you were to go to Leviticus 23, where you have the seven feasts that Israel is supposed to, um, to, to observe throughout the year, like Passover and Shavuot, you're not going to find it. And even in later books, like uh, the, the Festival of Purim, introduced in Esther, we have all those in the Hebrew Bible, but Hanukkah is not there. And the reason for that is because you find the story of Hanukkah in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees is considered to be in the Apocrypha. Um, if you come from a Catholic background, if you have a Catholic Bible, they consider 1st and 2nd Maccabees to be inspired by God. Uh, by and large, the Jewish community uh, has not and never has, and the Protestant community does not either. So while I don't consider it to be inspired by God, um, these books are still extremely valuable to read. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so because it really sheds light on the so-called intertestamental period, 
right? So, okay, so you're reading the Hebrew Bible and you finish with the Hebrew Bible. You finish either with Malachi or, or Second Chronicles, whichever version you're reading, right? And at this point, it's about 500 BCE. Uh, you have the Jews returning after the Babylonian exile to Judea to build their temple. The Persians are in charge. Great. Then you flip your page to Matthew and it's a, a whole new world. Right. You flip over to Matthew. Now you have the Jews who are under Roman occupation and like who are the Romans. And then you have all these groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots. And they're debating these things like resurrection that like you don't really hear discussed too much in the Hebrew Bible. Halakhic interpretation of the Sabbath. It's a whole new world. And so this gap, they call it the 400 years of silence, even though it was anything but silent. And it's really important to be able to to understand what transpired in these years to contextualize the New Testament. Uh, the, these books are helpful not only to understand the history, but also understanding Jewish thought. Even in, in 2 Maccabees, very quickly, you, you have this, um, this growing idea that the death of a martyr or the death of a righteous person is able to avert God's wrath on Israel as martyrs were dying under Antiochus. And so this idea of the death of the righteous atones for the wicked becomes more prevalent in rabbinic literature. And I think it's very important to understand uh, Yeshua's work as an atoning figure. So all that to say there, it's very important. I would encourage you to, you know, explore what these texts, uh, what these texts actually say. So first and second Maccabees, um, just so you know, it's not like a part one, part two. Uh, it's two different approaches to the story of Antiochus and how he tried to make Judea into kind of a Greek Hellenized uh, state. Um, first Maccabees is, is much more literal, whereas second Maccabees is much more, uh, I don't want to say spiritual. It's much more um, metaphysical realities of angels fighting with you and, and you know, much more focused on God. So we're going to look at just first Maccabees, which seems to be a little more historically grounded to get our story. Now, as I mentioned, uh, I understand that this map may look a little, uh, you know, like it was created in like 1992, but you're going to, but bear with me because it is an important, um, it is important because it kind of correlates with what's happening geographically. So as I mentioned, the Hebrew Bible, it closes and the Jews are returning to Judea and the Persians are over the whole region, right? Cyrus was kind of in charge of allowing the Jews to go back. He's called a Messiah in Isaiah. So, so he's, you know, he's a good figure, but the Persian empire was extremely powerful until you get to about the fifth, fourth century. And they start having issues with the Greeks in the West, the Greeks start coming up and they start fighting with them. And then at about 332 BCE, you have the Greeks who take over. It was uh, a, a decisive battle led by Alexander the Great when he was about uh, 18 to 20. And he took over and he even spread the empire further than the Persians, which, which makes us question what we were doing when we were 18 to 20. But, you know, nonetheless, to each their own here. So the Greeks, they, they, they spread their empire but it was in a unique way. You see, the, the Babylonians and the Persians, they allowed enclaves of groups to stay the same, to practice their customs, to be happy in that sense. Whereas the Greeks, as the empire spread, also a culture spread, which was known as Hellenism, 
which was Greek culture. And what they wanted to do was unify a diverse people. They didn't want everyone practicing their own things. They wanted to unify everyone to some extent. So as the empire spread, you have Greek gymnasiums where young people were, were trained. You have uh, Greek plays that were put on. You have Greek pantheon places where people could worship. And, and there was benefit to this because you know with the spread of Hellenism, you have the spread of a universal language. Uh, sort of like how English today is, is somewhat of a universal language, Greek at this time became a universal language, which is why many Jewish, uh, much Jewish literature was written in Greek. So while there were benefits, um, there was also the big issue that elements of Hellenism were antithetical or against elements from Jewish thought and Jewish belief. For example, the idea of a pantheon in Greek literature was antithetical to Jewish monotheism. Um, Jews are not going to worship multiple gods. You have this notion where the Greeks valued the human body and, and, and the way that it looked, whereas the Jews practiced circumcision, which was, which was uh, massively ridiculed by both the Greeks as well as the Romans. And even in Maccabees, you have Jews who tried to reverse their circumcision. So there were things that were um, th that they, they butted heads on, and this is going to come, and you'll see it more with Antiochus. So after Alexander died, he died, unfortunately, at a young age, his kingdom was split up into four different empires. You have the Seleucids in the north, which is uh, the orange, and the Ptolemies, which are the purple. For our purposes, these are the only two that are important. And they fought often. Now notice who's right in the middle. And that's Israel. Uh, Israel is extremely important archaeologically, historically, because as you can see, they were like the bridge. They were the bridge between the Mesopotamian leader in the north, who was the orange ones, and then the Egyptian kind of world power in the south. And so the, the jurisdiction over who is controlling Judea went back and forth between these two until you get to about the second century. When you get to the second century in Judea, they're under the jurisdiction of the Seleucids, the, the orange figures, and a leader arose who hated their religion. And this leader is the one around whom Hanukkah revolves, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes, as you may know, means God manifest, which definitely implies that he was a humble, humble leader for the people. Antiochus IV, he came to the throne somewhat illegitimately around 175. And as he would fight with the Egyptians, um, he would go through Judea and he tried to intimidate Judea. He didn't like how their customs were uh, setting them apart and making them unique. And so he would go into the temple and steal th some things, but ultimately he sent forth a law. Sorry, here, he sent forth a law in order for the Jews to stop practicing their customs. And essentially there's, there's three points to their law. The first is to stop burnt sacrifices, to stop sacrificing and drink offerings, which was, again, like we said, like that cell phone, right? Like that lifeline to God, you have to stop the sacrifices. Second, he defiled the temple. They erected a, a statue of Zeus around the temple and also around the regions, they would set up altars where Jews had to uh, worship to Greek gods. So not only do you have to stop what you're doing, you had to engage in Greek worship. And then finally, they prohibited circumcision. Circumcision being the very sign of Israel's covenant with God. So essentially, Antiochus wanted them to completely abandon their Jewish faith, 
in the Jewish religion, right? So on the one hand, while God called Israel to be distinct as a priestly nation and a light to the world, um, Antiochus wanted to stamp out any distinction and to make them not a light to the world, but to make them like the world in every sense. And in the same, in the same manner, we have the same struggle today, right? Where God calls us to be distinct, where God calls us to be a light, you know, to be the salt of the earth, but there's always that pull to assimilate, to acculturate, to just be, you know, one of the crowd. And so this is what the Jewish people were dealing with at this time. And Antiochus warned that if you disobeyed, you would be killed. And you could read through the Maccabean um, account in terms of how those deaths took place. And this is why Antiochus Epiphanes was eventually called, not Epiphanes, but Antiochus the Madman. So at first glance, when we read this story, we may wonder, like, who in Judea would, would follow him, right? Imagine you're in Judea, and you're, you're kind of like fresh out of the Babylonian exile, right? Like that happened a couple hundred years ago, but you know it was from disobedience. You now have your temple, and then he's telling you to abandon it. Who would actually abandon uh, or follow Antiochus and abandon the Torah? However, like I said before, when you read 1 Maccabees and when you read Josephus, you see that there were many priests that we would call Hellenized or that were apostates. They went over to Antiochus and we think, okay, what caused them to fall? Now, unfortunately, no strict answer is provided, but I believe that some insight is given uh, in 1 Maccabees as to what caused them to fall. See, I don't think that, that those who left the faith were thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to apostatize, I'm going to leave God. Instead, I think that they were able to justify their stance. This is actually what God wants us to do. In 1 Maccabees 1.11, it says, in those days, certain renegades, you know, those, those priests or those Jews who went away and became uh, apostates, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. In other words, things are going really poorly. Things are going really bad. Therefore, we should go over and make a covenant with them. Now, I'm sure that in the conversations between apostate um, Jews, as well as Jews who are faithful to God, as they were debating, what they should do, I'm sure that those apostate Jews could quote scripture to support their view. For example, they probably could have said, don't you know what Deuteronomy says? Deuteronomy says, if you obey the Lord, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Well, we're being cursed. Therefore, we're disobeying God. We should go and make the covenant with Antiochus. That way, we'll be blessed. This is what God wants us to do. You see, this type of... Um, nitpicking scripture is prevalent all over. Um, even today, you'll hear many, many times, what did Jesus say? You shall not judge. And that's often interpreted to mean, do not confront any sin. Everything is okay, right? The issue with that is when you read other things that Yeshua said, such as, you know, Matthew 23 with the woes to the religious leaders or Matthew 18, how to confront sin, uh, or even John 3, that those who don't believe in Yeshua are already judged. You start seeing that that's not what he meant at all. And that's the dangerous of nitpicking verses. Literally, you can justify anything. It, it, always, it always surprises me, you know, with the, with the Civil War in the 19th century, 
you know, when you read literature on it with the North versus the South and the abolition, um, uh, uh, not absolving, uh, abolishing slavery, um, both the North and the South were quoting from the Bible to justify their view, even though they were completely antithetical. And so to some degree, you know, it's, it's a common like uh, statement, you know, because you have apps on your phone, uh, you know, for banking or whatever. And, and people say, oh, yeah, there's an app for that. There's an app for that, right, for whatever you want to do. To some degree, there's a text for that. There's a scripture for that. You could justify anything, subjugating women. There's a text for that. You know, abusing children. There's a text for that. And that's the very dangerous thing about nitpicking from scripture. And so how do you safeguard against that? How do you prevent yourself from engaging in that? The key way is to always take the whole testimony of scripture. Always take the whole testimony of scripture, consider everything, not just one single verse, but everything. So for example, if Antiochus came today um, to Ohio and, and he made these types of regulations, you know, stop worshiping, stop this, stop that, and it's illegal and you'll be put to death. You can have believers who will come and say, listen, don't you know what Paul says in Romans 13? Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's true. But then you read other narratives like Elijah, where Elijah wasn't going to obey King Ahab and Jezebel in worshiping Baal. You have Daniel. He wasn't going to obey the Persian law in order to stop praying to God. And even in the New Testament, you have Peter. What happened? You know, Herod put Peter in prison. What happened? In the book of Acts, the angel came and took him out of prison, which is not exactly legal. And so from the whole testimony of Scripture, you gain a principle that yes, you absolutely obey the laws over you until they start going against the laws of God. But when you don't have the whole testimony, when you don't have the text before you and have an understanding of it, we could easily be deceived and led away. And so here, the Hellenizers, the, uh, the Hellenized priests, they were able to, I'm sure, justify their position of moving away from God and going to Hellenism, but that doesn't mean it was right. So as uh, Antiochus, he wanted to make everyone into a Greek, uh, a Greek city. He went to Modi'in, which is a city about northeast uh, or northwest rather of Jerusalem, I believe. And as he was there, you have the, uh, the, the priest who was there was Mattathias. This is the figure who's on the left hand side. Mattathias had five sons and he was not going to abandon the Torah. And so as the Syrian soldiers, they came to Modi'in and they forced the Jewish people. They said, okay, you're going to sacrifice. And they asked Mattathias, they said, look, Matty, you go first, you sacrifice because people are watching you. And Mattathias said, absolutely not. Am I going to sacrifice to a foreign God? And then another Jewish person came forth and said, I'll do it. And so as he was about to sacrifice, 1 Maccabees 2, it reads, when Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal in his heart. And it was stirred, and he gave vent to a righteous anger, and he ran, and he killed him, the Jewish person, on the altar. Uh, while I would never encourage killing um, in order to confront a sin or something like that, I love the motivation behind Mattathias' heart, which it was, it was a righteous anger. It was a zeal for God's glory that he made for it and, and started the rebellion. And so he went for it. He killed the, the Jewish person sacrificing. He attacked the officers. And then he made a claim and said, those who are with us, those who are for Torah, let us go and let us rebel. Let us get back our temple. And this started the Maccabean revolt. Eventually, uh, Mattathias' son, Judas, 
took over, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means hammer. He was a great military leader, and that's why it's the Maccabeans. So the revolt took uh, a period over three years, and during that time, many Jewish people were killed, but eventually they succeeded. They regained the temple, they recaptured it, and they rededicated it to God. Actually, it says on the very same day, on the very same day that it was defiled, it was rededicated after three years. Now, in 1 Maccabees, the celebration of the temple took place over a period of eight days. Now, if there's no miracle of oil lasting for eight days, why did they then celebrate for eight days? Uh, and there's a couple of different theories. The, the most uh, plausible one, one option would be that they were celebrating Sukkot a little bit later. The Hanukkah is kind of viewed as a Sukkot celebration uh, because they weren't able to celebrate Sukkot at the time in the fall because obviously they didn't have the temple. So Hanukkah is kind of a Sukkot celebration. Uh, another option that I think is, is more plausible is um, how the eight days is kind of symbolic of the previous dedications to God. So when you go back to Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8, it was dedicated over a period of eight days. Uh, the tabernacle in Leviticus uh, 7 and 8 or 6 and 7, uh, that was uh, dedicated and sanctified over a period of eight days. And so here, the celebration is for eight days in order to kind of validify that the temple is back, it's healthy, and that God accepted it. So whatever the reason for the eight days, it's a wonderful celebration. We're thankful to God that he preserved the Jewish people as the Abrahamic pro uh, covenant promises and the fact that he um, preserved them spiritually. So with all that said, what can we learn? from the story and how can we be challenged in our own dedication. So the first point is the danger of deception. So first we're gonna look at Daniel 8. If you turn there about like 25 minutes ago, <laughs> this is now right where we're gonna, uh, where we're gonna take a look. Uh, in Daniel 8, it provides insight into how the people were deceived by Antiochus. Now uh, you may know, the book of Daniel, it's a fascinating read. You have devotional things, like there's kind of something for everybody. Devotional uh, narratives with Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then you have more prophetic, eschatological things. So Daniel 9, the coming of the Messiah. Daniel 7, the son of man. And it's in Daniel 8 where you have the rise of Antiochus. And we're going to see what, uh, what Daniel says about it. So Daniel 8, 1, it opens up and it says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So it's about 551 BCE at this point, you know, about 200 years before the Greeks take over. He says, in, uh, in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a ram that had two horns was standing in front of the canal. So this is the, the ram is on the right hand side. This is something that, what it looked like. Um, and just as an aside, I think a lot of people stay away from um, apocalyptic literature like Daniel or, or Revelation because it is very like symbolic. But most of the time, the text explains to you what all the symbols mean. It's just, you know, it's just later on. So I'm going to kind of, you know, fuse that all together. But let that be a motivation, not, not ever to stay away from these types of, uh, of texts, um, but to delve into them. So Daniel, he says that he saw a ram which had two horns, and then he tells us that the ram represents Persia. Okay, this is the Persian Empire, and they are dominating everything. And then he says, while I was observing, a male goat came out of the West. Uh, the male goat is Greece. 
right? And his feet weren't even touching the ground. It was just, boom, making headway very quickly. And then it said that he had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, as you could see in the photo. Um, the horn often represents leaders. In this case, it's Alexander the Great, right? So 200 years purportedly, if, they, if Daniel wrote this in about 551, 200 years before Greece took over, he was prophesying Greece's dominion over the Persian Empire. And then notice, remember when Alexander the Great died, he had uh, his kingdom was split into four different uh, kingdoms. Daniel speaks about this. He says the large horn, which is Alexander, was broken in, in verse 8. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven, you know, north, south, east, west. You have the four horns there. But Daniel focuses in on one, Antiochus the fourth. And this is what he says. It says, one of them grew uh, out of them, out of the horns, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great. It went to the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land, which is Jerusalem. And then notice what it says about Antiochus, that it even magnified itself, meaning it caused itself to become great. It magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. This sounds exactly like what Antiochus was going to do. Now, there's some debate. Who is this commander of the host? Antiochus made himself equal with the commander of the host. Who is that? Uh, some people say it's Onias, it's a priest. Others say Michael the Archangel. I think a good case could be made that it's God. And the reason for that is because later in Daniel 11, uh, Daniel again says that Antiochus, that he spoke monstrous things against the God of gods, which is a title for the God of heaven. But more than that, notice that the commander of the host, that the horn or Antiochus removed the sacrifices from him and the place of his sanctuary. Anytime in the Hebrew Bible, if it's referring to Israel, anytime you see his sanctuary, it's God's sanctuary. It's never called the priest's sanctuary or the king's sanctuary. It's God's. So this means, and we know this, that Antiochus made himself equal with God um, and calling himself Epiphanes. Now, uh, as a little aside, this term commander of the host, uh, you find it many times in the Hebrew Bible, especially Samuel with the kings. But there's only two times where it refers to a kind of non-human figure. Uh, here in Daniel 8, and then in a very interesting short narrative in Joshua 5. Joshua 5, 14 through 15, Joshua is there, and it says that a man comes forward holding a sword, and Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? And the man just calls himself captain of the host, which is the same term here, captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua bowed down, and then the man, you know what he says to Joshua? Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Well, the from the Hebrew Bible, there's only one person who makes the ground holy from Exodus 3, and that's the presence of God. And so I like to connect Daniel 8 with Joshua 5 with the whole question of, does God ever take human form, or does he ever come down to meet us? So you could take a look at that uh, a little later on. So looking back at Daniel 8, Daniel explains how the takeover of Antiochus was possible right in the next verse. He says here, and on account of transgression, the host, who is, you know, the priests or Israel, the host will be given over to the horn, Antiochus, along with the regular sacrifice. And it, the horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So there's 
two quick things here. First, the statement on account of transgression could also be translated because of sin that Israel went over. So what that means is that, you know, the, the priests were not de dedicated to God, focusing on the Torah, focusing on their, on, on their uh, duties in the temple. And then they woke up one morning and said, you know what? We should follow Antiochus. What he's saying here is there was already transgression that was going on. There was already a, a removal away from God that the priests were having. And that's why, you know, Paul, he warns against tolerance of sin in our lives. When he's writing to the church, the congregation in Corinth, and he tells them, because they're, they're tolerating sin in their community, and he says, don't you know that a little bit of sin, a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough? Don't you know a little bit of sin spreads? There's no such thing as, you know, my guilty pleasure or just the thing I'm going to enjoy on the side. Why? The, the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, he tells us, he warns, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin never just stays there. Sin spreads and it deceives. So if we're at a place where we excuse sin, you know, that's not that big of a deal or, you know, it's not as bad as other people or we rationalize it. These are the very steps that lead to the fall. You know, it's always a big question, you know, when you hear a leader that fell uh, in whatever area and, you know, how could he fall or, or how could, you know, they have abandoned the Lord like that. And I was reading someone's testimony about how they were caught in adultery. And this is what he says. He says, I never thought I was a prime candidate for adultery. So how did I get there? Baby steps, right? Every decision, every rationalization or compromise, it's a step in a certain direction. That's why there's no such thing as just an isolated sin. So here, the priest, Daniel is saying that on account of sin, they left. There was already sin that was present. There was already a rebellion against God. And the second thing is that Antiochus, it says, he will fling the truth to the ground. The way to deceive. The people, the way that you want to deceive any follower of the Messiah is to separate them from the word. And that's what he did. He separated them from the Torah. He separated them from the commands. He flung it to the ground and he was able to lead them anywhere. When you get rid of the scripture, the testimony of scripture, you get rid of your compass. And that's what he did here. Literally, the oldest trick in the book, right? When you go back to, to Genesis 3, that's precisely what the serpent did. He separated Eve from the command of God, from the word of God. He caused doubt to it, and then he was able to deceive. And so when we abandon the word, when we throw it away, that's the biggest issue because we lost our compass. So how do we fight against this? Daniel gives us the answer. In Daniel 11.32, he says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. It's those who know the commands and who follow them that will not be deceived and, and follow away. So we fight deception, we test everything by the word. When someone comes up with a new idea, you know, and, and there's this, this funny picture where it's just, you know, when someone says, I have a new theological idea, it's kind of like translated as, hey, I found this old heresy, you know, because like there's like nothing really new. Um, but if someone has a new idea, a new way of reading, something like that, you want to test it against the whole testimony of scripture. Think of Abimelech. You know, Abimelech in Genesis 20, he was deceived by Abraham about Sarah being his his uh, sister, and how did he know he was deceived? Because God told him. And in the same way with the word of God, it speaks to us through the testimony of the spirit, and that's how we stay grounded.
So the first point, the danger of deception, the way to fight this is to know, to know the truth, to continue studying. That's the first thing. The second thing is that dedication is a decision. That's going to sound simplistic, but, but bear with me here. So we know the, the what. We know what we need to do. Study the word, grow in it. But the question is how? Again, we're, we're obsessed with New Year's resolutions, you know, whether it's, you know, I don't know, losing weight or uh, praying more or something. And there's all these statistics about how people rarely ever follow through. Uh, how do we stay dedicated? And, and I think the example of the biblical heroes speaks volumes. In, uh, in 1 Maccabees, it says, as, as a law was, was coming forth and as Antiochus was telling people to abandon uh, the Lord, it says here, but many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts that they would not eat the unclean food. Uh, the, in Greek, it, it, they were strengthened, they were fortified. What this means is that they made a decision and then they made sure that all their steps followed that decision. In other words, they didn't wait till they got to the altar at Modi'in or at Jerusalem or wherever and say, okay, I'm going to make my decision now as everyone's watching me and I'm under pressure. They made their decision beforehand and ensured that all their steps followed through. That's why Mattathias said, I'm not even going near that altar. We see something very similar with the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel, he was taken from Judea during the Babylonian exile. He was uh, taken away from family, from most of his friends, from his community. And he was given, similarly, unkosher food. And then what does it say? It says Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. The word literally made up his mind. He established it on his heart. So again, our dedication... As much as, as it's, it would be great if we had, you know, no desire to turn away or, you know, if we had some, some mountaintop experience, our dedication is based on our decision beforehand. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received as a kid that stayed with me to this day uh, was actually from my mother. And she said, never go into the lion's den when the lions are hungry. Meaning, if you have made a decision don't ever put yourself in a situation where you can jeopardize it. You make your decision. You're struggling with something. Let's say you're struggling with food. You make the decision, I'm not going to have this in the house. You take the steps to make sure we don't break it. And that's what we see here. Recently, I was, I was watching a uh, TED Talk by Angela Duckworth. TED Talks are uh, kind of motivational academic uh, speeches. And she was doing a study on why kids or teens or adults are successful in life. What is it? What's that key component that makes them successful? And so she looked at teachers, students, people in military academies, people in sales, and she found the one key ingredient. And I'm going to quote her here, the one characteristic. She says, it wasn't social intelligence. It wasn't good looks. It wasn't physical health. And it was not IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. It's sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for a week, not for a month, but for years. In other words, it's making that decision and making the steps to stick with it. I wish it was, it was more complicated. I wish there was kind of like a key, you know, to, that was illuminating. But that's what you see is the key to being dedicated, is to making that decision and taking the proper steps to follow through. So therefore, uh, the key ingredient to being dedicated to God is making that decision. 
and following it. So we first saw the danger of deception. You know, know the word of God. You know, people want to throw it down. Know it. That way we will not be deceived. The second is the decision to be dedicated. You know, we can't rely on our emotions. We can't put ourselves in jeopardized situations. Make the decision and follow the steps to, to fulfill it. And then finally, the third thing is the object of our dedication. Who are we dedicated to? Now, this is an important question because, I mean, if, if you read uh, 1 Kings 18, to me, the prophets of Baal were extremely dedicated. I think they have more zeal than, than I do, right? They're, they're there, they're chanting all day before Baal for him to come down. They're cutting themselves. Um, they had zeal, but it was in the wrong direction. And so well, how can we focus on or how can we know who the true object of our dedication really is? We find the answer to that in John 10. So if you would, you could turn with me, John 10, 22. That's where we're going to um, make our final point here. Now, as was mentioned before, John 10, 22 is the only, um, the only statement about the Feast of Hanukkah in the New Testament. It states, at the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, that's when Yeshua, he's at the temple. So you can imagine it's the Feast of Dedication, the scene opens up, Yeshua is at the temple, and then he is approached by the Jewish people. Uh, in the Gospel of John, when it says Jews, it could mean religious leaders, it could mean uh, just the general public. But he's approached by the Jewish people, and they ask him the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, I don't know the tone. Could have been sarcastic, could have been sincere. But I think it's a wonderful question to ask at the time of Hanukkah. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, are you the one we're supposed to be dedicated to? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Now, immediately before this, if you even look in your Bibles, the, the previous narrative before this, you have Jesus' parable as the great shepherd. And the great shepherd was a messianic claim. When you look at the Hebrew Bible, the term shepherd is often used for Israel's leaders. But especially when you get to Ezekiel, um, God judges the, the shepherds over Israel. He says to them, they only feed themselves. They neglect the poor and they dominate them with force. But God also promises in Ezekiel 34, he says, I'm going to regather you and then my servant David will feed them and he will be their shepherd. So Yeshua, he calls himself the great shepherd. He's identifying himself as this Messiah, which prompts the question, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Yeshua really is the, the great shepherd, right? Just as, as the previous shepherds, they, they, they only fed themselves. Yeshua, he laid his life down for the people. And, and as the shepherds, they, they, they put down the poor. They didn't care for them. Yeshua lifted them up, healed them, ate with them, spent time with them. He was the shepherd taking care of his people. And so as they pose this question to him, are you the Messiah? Yeshua has a kind of twofold answer. Um, the first thing he says is, I told you, and you do not believe my works that I do in my father's name, and these testify of me. Now, the key thing here, we're going to discuss this in, in just a moment, but the works that I do in my father's name. Now, Yeshua is, is very focused on knowing people by their fruits, right? And so he's saying, look. Look at the works that I do. At this point in the Gospel of John, Yeshua never made a public proclamation about his Messiahship. Yet he's saying, I already told you, look at my works. 
And you see something similar with John. You know, imagine you're, you're John the Baptist. You're a forerunner of the Messiah. You're proclaiming, guys, the, the time is now. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. And then you find yourself in prison, about to get your head chopped off. And so John sends his, his, um, his workers, or he, he sends his, his friends to go ask Yeshua, are you really the one that we're waiting for? Because, you know, it doesn't seem like it's happening. And what did Yeshua reply? He said, tell him, go report to John what you see, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Why? Because all that comes from Isaiah 35, that this is what the Messiah is going to do. So Yeshua, he's very focused on, look at the works that he's testifying to who I am. So the first thing he says, I told you, but you do not believe that I'm doing my father's works. And then the second thing he says is you do not believe because you are not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Right. So they have not believed because they are not his sheep because they're not his sheep. They don't understand his words. Now, a lot of imagery of sheep here. Um, I've never really dealt with sheep growing up in the Jewish suburbs of Montreal. Uh, we do not have sheep walking around anywhere. I hear a lot of stories about how sheep are such great listeners. I'll take it for, uh, you know, for granted that that's true. But Yeshua defines the key characteristic of a sheep here. First, he says, my sheep, they hear my voice, meaning they obey. I know them and they follow me. Now, first off, I love that statement, I know them, because in my opinion, one of the scariest verses in the, in the gospel, one of the, one of the scariest verses that I've ever come across is in Matthew 7, where Yeshua says that at the end, many people are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, this, and this in your name? Didn't I claim your name and, and proclaim myself as a follower and even was successful in my ministry? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. But here he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, right? There's that intimate relationship. And then he says, and they follow me. In 1 John 2, 3, it gives us the key. Am I a follower of the Messiah? If we ever kind of, you know, doubt, am I really following? Am I doing well? 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, if we follow his teachings. And so... A good question, especially at this time of uh, Hanukkah, a good question is, is that an appropriate description of us? Do we listen to the words of the Messiah? Are they the things that we look to that is the object of, of that, the things that guide our lives? Because those are the characteristics of the sheep. They listen to him and they follow his commands. But Yeshua, and, and I, I want to make this point here, and when you continue reading John 10, Yeshua is not merely a messianic redeemer. He's not merely a great shepherd that we're supposed to, to obey and to follow, but he presents himself to be much, much more. In the next section here, when he's talking about the sheep, that the sheep will never leave him, or that no one will ever snatch him out of his hands, uh, or the Father's hands, he makes the statement, I and the Father are one. And now, uh, Many trees have died uh, in order to, to uh, be able for people to express what they think about this verse, right? right? There's a lot of different views on what this means. I and the Father are one. Um, I just want to make a couple of quick points. First, the statement does not teach that Jesus and the Father are literally one person. Um, that idea is what you call modalism, where you just have one God who manifests himself 
in, in uh, three different ways. That is not what Yeshua is teaching. That's, the Greek would not support that. And if you want more information, I'd be happy to, to send that to you. The, the thing that this means, the Father and I are one, when you look at the context of John, what it's saying is that Yeshua and the Father have the exact same vision and mission. The exact same vision and mission. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus continually reiterates everything the Father does, the Son does. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And while we may not think that's a big deal, the people understood that as blasphemy, that he's equating himself with God. You know, people ask, listen, if Jesus is deity, if he's really the word, why didn't he just say, I am God? I am the one from Genesis 18. I'm the one who's come down. But that's precisely what he's saying when he says that everything the Father does, the Son does as well. So look, for some examples, uh, in John 5, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They didn't like it. They challenged him. And he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, right? He identified himself with the actions of the father. And in response, people picked up stones to kill him, claiming, quote, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or later, when Jesus says, the father raises the dead and gives life, so the son also gives life. Once again, he's identifying himself with the works of the father. Now, you may ask, why is that a big deal? Who cares? We could identify ourselves with the work of the Father, although I wouldn't say that, but, you know, why is that such a big deal? It tells us in John 5, because their works are aligned, it says, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. If your works are aligned, the worship given to God will be given to the Son. That's a big problem with Isaiah 45, where God, or 42, where God says he gives his worship to no one. He gives his glory to no one. So by virtue of Yeshua saying that his works are the same as the Father's, that is a claim to deity. The statement, I and the Father are one, again, is that same type of claim. And that's why they pick up stones in order to stone him. The notion, the Father and I are one, means that they are perfectly united in action. What Yeshua does, the Father does, or vice versa. And that's why Hebrew says that the Son is the exact representation of God's nature and he upholds all things by his power. No angel and no human could ever make such a claim. Now, despite this, um, many people deny the deity of the Messiah. Uh, if you present passages like this where people wanted to stone Yeshua, uh, they will generally say, you know, well, what one answer is, well, uh, the, the religious leaders were just misunderstanding Jesus, right? And they, they wanted to stone him, but they didn't really understand what he was saying. The issue with that view is that John 1.1 1, 1, uh, is the author, the inspired author speaking. And he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was whatever God was. Right? So the high view of Jesus is already right there from the author. It's not just the religious leaders. A second objection that many people bring up is that, you know, like in, in the gospel, uh, in, uh, in Hebrews, when, when Yeshua is called God, uh, that doesn't actually mean God. Theos in Greek, it doesn't mean our understanding of God. That's a very common one. Um, uh, Rabbi Silverman was uh, alluding before to my work that I do uh, in terms of a kind of gathering together uh, messianic interpretations. And uh, I, I, I get to have some pretty interesting conversations with believers in the Messiah and non-believers, uh, non-believers who are Jewish in the Messiah. And uh, so I got a call one day 
And um, a friend of mine, a mutual friend, wanted me to have a conversation with a Jewish person who was a Unitarian, who didn't think that Yeshua was deity. And the, the very verse, he used this argument with me. It was like a three-hour conversation, but he used this argument that, yeah, Yeshua is called Theos. He's called God, but that's not what God means. And the, um, the passage that he used uh, for that was Psalm 82. And I'm going to uh, bring that up right over here. In Psalm 82, you're reading Michael Heiser's work. I'm sure if you have not gotten to this already, you will. But this is a passage about God's divine assembly. And in Psalm 82.1, it says, God takes his stand in his own congregation, and he judges in the midst of the Elohim, of the gods. So here you see God, Elohim, being applied to someone else. Whether it's the angels or Israel or judges, it's being applied to someone else. If you look at Exodus 4, that it's applied to Moses. If you look in Zechariah, I believe, 10, it's applied to the nation of Israel. Even in the New Testament, Theos, God, is applied to Herod uh, in Acts 12 and even Satan in 2 Corinthians, where it says that he's the God of this age. So therefore, when Jesus says, or when Hebrew says that he is God, um, that just means he's an elevated being. Okay. If anyone presents that to you first, there's a couple of problems with that argument. Uh, first off, yes, while Theos may be applied to other figures, um, you have the very name of God, yud heh vav applied to the Son in Hebrews 1.10. So that kind of, you know, that, that, that puts an issue in the, in the whole uh, name thing. The second thing is that the argument for Messiah's deity goes far beyond just one title, right? Paul says that in him was the fullness of the deity that it dwelt. Um, no, that's never said of an angel or a person. Or first, uh, first Col uh, Colossians 1, where it says that he was involved in creation, Right. Psalm 45 or Isaiah 45, rather, says that God alone was the one who created it. So if someone else is involved, it must be God. But the greatest argument, the greatest response to Psalm 82, if someone ever brings it up to you, this shows, you know, that, that Jesus is just one of the gods. The greatest response is Jesus's own response in John 10. Because you see, when he said the father and I are one, they picked up stones to stone him. And then he quotes Psalm 82. He quotes it. He says, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, in the law, in the, in the Hebrew Bible? I said, you are gods. That's from Psalm 82. And this is what he says. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now, what Yeshua is doing here is he's using a type of Calvahomer argument, which means from a minor premise to a major premise. And Yeshua does this all the time. Uh, if, if God takes care of the ravens, how much more is he going to take care of you? Or if your earthly father knows how to take care of you, how much more does your heavenly father know how to take care of you? And that's what he does here. He says, if in Psalm 82, God says to the, and depending on whatever you think, angels, judges, whatever, whoever is mentioned here, if God says to them, you are gods, how much more is that title applied to the Son of God? Now, what is the Son of God? Usually it means a human king, right? David, he's the Son of God. Psalm 2 is Son of God, things like that. When you read John, and I challenge you, read the Gospel of John and look for Son of God. You're going to see that the way the Gospel of John uses it is as a form of deity. For example, in John 5, 18, for the reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
uh, was because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or John 19, 7, and the Jews answered, we have a law, and by that he, Yeshua, ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. The term son of God implies deity. Now, how does that work? Um, sonship could all, very often be used for identification, right? So Judas, for example, was called the son of perdition. It's not because perdition had a child, right? He was identified with perdition. James and John, they're called the sons of thunder because that's their characteristic in Mark. Believers today in Galatians were called the sons of Abraham. Why? Because we're identified with the faith that he expressed. And so sonship often is used as an identity marker or a qualification. And that's why the term son of God could very well be referred to as deity. And that's why Yeshua says, the father is in me and I in the father. They are united in their action. So this goes back to our question about dedication, right? If Yeshua is the great shepherd, we are called to listen and obey. And that's a very important point. But as we see in John 10, Yeshua is much more than just a, a Messiah or a Messianic figure like we've had in the past. He's much more. He's the ultimate object of our worship and our dedication because it is God who came down on earth. And so like Thomas, what we have at the end of the gospel, Thomas, doubting Thomas, when he saw the Lord, when he touched him, what did he say? My Lord and my God. He had the Messiah as the object of his dedication. And that's the critical point that we need as well. So how do we stay focused on the Lord? You may know people who, you know, are not deceived. They know the word of God. They made their dedication to God, but they have left the Lord. They don't have them as the object of their faith. I was reading a blog once about uh, why Jewish believers, many Jewish believers are falling away from the Messiah. And obviously everyone's experience is different and unique. But um, this, this author, he, he made a good point And he said, you see yourself going down a dangerous road when you start thinking it's Yeshua plus something. I need Yeshua plus acceptance in the community. Yeshua plus education, Yeshua plus money, whatever it may be. When your, your object of dedication starts to broaden and shift, that's where we get in trouble. And Yeshua told us in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You either hate one and you love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. We could only have one God. And it's clear, according to John 10, who that should be. So in conclusion, uh, this time, you guys have done great. I, don't, I, I, I only see a very select few of you, but uh, uh, it's been a, a little while. A lot was thrown at you. But in summary, we have first the danger of deception, right? The key is know the word. The Antiochus, contemporary people like that, they want to separate you from it. You want to be like the Maccabees, those who stayed faithful, those who knew the word and were able to stand on it. The second thing is the key is dedication. We need to make a decision and then have those steps follow through so that we can remain dedicated to the Lord. Like Daniel, we set it upon our heart and then we make every step in order to follow through with that. And then finally, the object of our dedication, who is the Messiah alone. So I just want to encourage you, you know, as this time of, uh, of Hanukkah, we're celebrating the regathering of the temple and the, or rather the, the, the recapturing of the temple and the rededication of it. And in a very similar way, Paul tells us 
as believers, you know, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God. And so just as the temple was wholly rededicated, um, may we be in prayer that God will seek us out to show us parts of our lives that, that aren't fully dedicated to him, convict us so that we could be on the right track and make sure that we have him as our object of dedication. So uh, let me just pray very quickly. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you, God, for your preservation of the Maccabeans, the Hasmoneans. Father, thank you that your spirit lives in us and is able to instruct us and is able to convict us, Father. And I pray in this time of dedication, Lord, we celebrate the temple being rededicated. And Father, we pray that you would seek us out, that your spirit would seek, would convict, Father, so that we could be fully dedicated to you as sheep and as followers of the one true God of Israel. Amen.